Good morning, this is Lisa coming to you from the ILL, the Edwin Elder Library, and today we're going to be doing chapter 14. This is day 14 of Meeting God in Holy Places, a devotional journey by F. Lagarde Smith, illustrated by Glenda Ray. If you, if you get a copy of this book, you'll enjoy the illustrations, they're beautiful. Chapter 14, I Die Every Day, 1 Corinthians 15, 31. Masada or Masada, I'm not sure, M-A-S-A-D-A. Sacrifice. I still have mixed feelings about Masada. Situated 1,400 feet above the Dead Sea, surrounded on all sides by cliffs, and bordered by the harsh wilderness of Judea, Masada seems impregnable. Of course, that was the whole idea. Upon his return from Rome in 37 BC as king of Judah, Herod began construction on his royal sanctuary and fortress on Masada's table-like summit. In addition to massive fortifications, there were elaborate palaces and enough storehouses and cisterns to withstand a protracted war. Some 50 years later, that very impregnability would backfire on the Romans who succeeded Herod after his death. With Herod's departure, only a small garrison was stationed at Masada. Masada. I think I'm saying Masada. I hope I'm not too far off. Masada. Leaving it vulnerable despite the fortifications. Having become a soft target, it easily fell in AD 66 to Jewish zealots. Four years later, the zealots were joined by survivors of the fall of Jerusalem, setting the stage for a famous confrontation between the 960 defenders of Masada and the 10,000-man-strong 10th Legion. Today, one has the choice of ascending Masada on foot by way of winding by a way of a winding, torturous path or by taking a breathtaking ride in a cable car. No stranger to ease wherever I can find it. I chose the latter mode. Oh, no stranger to ease. I wasn't understanding what he's saying. No stranger to ease wherever I can find it. I chose the latter mode. On the ascent, I could see below me the restored walls of one of the Roman camps from where Flavius Silva, the Roman general, laid siege to the fortress in the spring of AD 73. Using Jewish slaves, the general's engineers built a quite remarkable earthen ramp up the western side of Masada, su uh, sufficient to support a mobile siege tower, complete with catapults, arrow launchers, and a giant battering ram. Stepping out of the cable car and surveying the bleak scenery in every direction, I was sure that neither side in the confrontation had much at stake in either holding or conquering Masada, other than sheer principle. The Romans might have said that they needed to wipe out the last pocket of Jewish resistance, but here they already had the troublemakers trapped. It was probably the insult of Jews occupying any part of the Roman territory that drew the Romans ire. For the Jewish defenders, it could have only been a matter of principle given the acknowledged fact that they had no chance whatever to defeat the Roman legion. In fact, it was that very principle, freedom over slavery, which ultimately led to one of the most revered moments in Jewish history, and for me, one of the most troubling. When at last the day came that the Romans were ready to ascend the ramp and commence the long-awaited assault, they set fire to the fortress and battered the way inside. But the soldiers, anticipating a bloody fight with the well-armed zealots, were greeted with only an eerie silence. What they discovered still brings chills to anyone who stands in the middle of Masada and looks around, trying to imagine a historic day. Purposely and methodically, the 960 defenders of Masada, men, women, and children, had committed mass suicide. 
It still brings chills, but also misgivings. I can't help but think of a number of modern-day mass suicides by other religious zealots. If I have disapproved of their actions, as I have, why should I be stirred by the patriotic fervor of the Masada defenders? Through the pen of Jewish historian Josephus Flavus, we have an account of the moving Eleazar or- oration which proposed the suicide pact. His speech may have been relayed to the Josephus by one of the two women and three children who survived. On the surface, there is much that rings true. Let us at once choose death with honor and do the kindest thing we can for ourselves, our wives and children, while it is still possible to show ourselves any kindness. After all, we were born to die, we and those we brought into the world. This even the luckiest must face. But outrage, slavery, and the sight of our wives led away to shame with our children. These are not evils to which man is subject by the laws of nature. Let us die unenslaved by our enemies and lead this world as free men in company with our wives and children. What decision would I have made under these circumstances? Would it have made any difference if I knew that survival meant inevitable torture for myself and the rape of my wife? Would I suffer less if death came by my own hand? Would my suicide convey some important message or defend some inviolable principle? At least some of these questions are the very ones being asked regarding euthanasia for the terminally ill, questions which seem to disregard God's sovereignty over my life and its ending. Death before slavery is one thing, suicide quite another. Not even Patrick Henry's purported challenge, give me liberty or give me death, contemplated death by his own hand. You need only contrast the infamous suicide of Judas with the noble and courageous death of the Jesus to appreciate the fact that suicide is not God's way, not even when the most important principle possible, spiritual freedom before spiritual slavery is at stake. If we learn anything at all from the manner of Jesus' death, surely it is that by meekly submitting to a death one does not choose is not the same as personally exercising the option. And given the excruciating pain of crucifixion, who would have had better cause to end it quickly? Yet for Jesus, there was but one response, not my will, but thine. Why then shall I have mixed feelings at all about the self-inflicted death at Masada's defenders? Why not simply get on the first cable car down the mountain in silent protest of their mass suicide? Why instead the lingering feeling of being stirred by their tragically misguided bravery? I'll tell you what I think it is. It's the stirring feeling that these Jewish zealots believed in something so strongly that they were willing to die for it. For the moment, forget how they died. Merely consider why they died. Standing in the middle of Masada's ruins and trying as best as I could to imagine the unimaginable, I found myself asking one of the most important questions any of us could ever ask. What would I be willing to die for? What immediately comes to mind, of course, are the lives of those with whom I have some special relation, my wife, my family, and my closest friends. If it should ever come down to one of their lives or mine, I would like to think I would step forward and do the right thing. At such time, surely love acts instinctively. I confess I am less certain about dying for king and country, not that I lack patriotism or think that I am somehow above losing my life in some distant foxhole, nor do I lack appreciation for those who gave their last full measure so that I might enjoy the freedoms which could only be bought at the price of too much spilt blood. It's just that as a Christian, I find the whole notion of war extremely complicated. Even if I myself would be willing to die on the field of battle, under what circumstances would I be willing to kill on the field of battle? The thought of being martyred for Christ brings me back to greater certainty, at least hypothetically. Not facing any 
not facing any immediate possibility of being fed to the lions or facing a firing squad because of my faith. It is perhaps too easy to say that I would be willing to die, but I certainly hope I would have the strength to honor Christ as he has honored you and me. And honor us he has, as we are reminded by the Apostle Paul. Fairly rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love in, in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That which motivated Jesus to, Jesus to lay down his life for us was anything but instinctual. In human terms, his death made no sense. We were not the lovable, but the unlovable. We were not family, but strangers and aliens. We were not righteous and worthy, but sinful and unworthy. Yet still, he laid down his life for us. So knowing that martyrdom, martyrdom is but the remotest possibility and believing that suicide, even in the defense of principle, is not God's way. Perhaps the question is not, what would I die for? But rather, what would I be willing to lay down my life for? Put it this way. The question is no longer hypothetical. I'm no longer off the hook. When Jesus says, greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends, he wasn't talking about my taking a bullet intended for someone else or committed mass suicide to make a crucial statement about the importance of freedom. In fact, he wasn't talking about dying at all, but rather living. Jesus died to teach us how to live. What then does it mean to live like Jesus died? It means to give the last full measure, not of our blood, but of ourselves. It means learning to love, Je love as Jesus loved. This is how we know that love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Together with Paul, I eagerly expect and hope that I will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. When I begin to think of my willingness to lay down my life in terms of loving and serving others, I am drawn back to Masada and to the 960 defenders who chose death over slavery. What a waste of human potential. Even as slaves, they would have had much to live for, just as other Jewish slaves before them, especially the children. Who knows, among the children might have been another Moses to lead them out of captivity. Among them might have been another Joshua to lead them into a land of peace and promise. Solomon was right in saying, anyone who is among the living has hope, even as a live dog is better than a dead lion. And where there is hope, one can lay down his life and keep it at the same time. For that reason, I disagree with what the Zealots did at Masada. Still, I am deeply in their debt for forcing me to ask a question I too often ignore. What would I be willing to die for? Unless we know what we're willing to die for, how shall we know what we're willing to live for? Wow. That really makes us think, doesn't it? What a horrible, horrible story about... I didn't know about that. 960 Zealots. Z-E-A-L-O-T-S. How you pronounce that? Is that right? Zealots? Anyway, them laying down their lives, their, their uh, wives and children. Oh my, how awful. How awful that they all, that they all did this. But you know what? We are to, we are to have our lives a daily sacrifice. Not our will, but thine will be done, Lord. As we point others to the cross, what can we do to help others? You know, it's more blessed to give than to receive. It is our, it is our greatest blessing that God blesses us to be a blessing. That is one of the greatest things. So today, let's try to do our very best. Whatever it is we do. Whatever our hands find to do, to do it with all of our might and do it all for the glory of God. Love you. You have a great day. Bye-bye.